Self as a preacher, especially with the good morning. It's so hard to say good evening. All right. Well, we have cookies, friends, so don't miss, miss out on them if you, if you want one. Let me go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Uh, what a blessing it is to gather around your word, to have your word in print, in a language we can understand, in an amazing translation. Lord, um, what a gift it is from you through so many people that have passed it down, from those that have written it, that were filled by your spirit. Um, and that it takes us to Jesus by faith, Lord, through the power of your spirit. And so we just say, come Holy Spirit and lift Jesus up. And uh, may the unfolding of your word give light and help us to see the beauty of Jesus and the wonder of your salvation in him even more tonight. Just ground us and root us in confidence and uh, that no matter what happens to us, no matter what may come, we are more than conquerors um, through Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. So we, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so friends, I was actually listening, I met with, a, it, it just happened kind of all of a sudden today, but I, I met with a guy that's, he's an American, but he spent the last 20 years, almost 20 years in Uganda, the, the Pearl of Africa, teaching and training pastors and doing other things, and neat guy, and he, he said, oh, I said, I, I told him I was lecturing on the end of Romans 8 tonight, and he said, I, I, I taught on and have a commentary on Romans 1 through 8, and it stops at the end of 8, and he goes, so he sent me his, um, his sermon that he preached up in Banff, Canada, and I was washing dishes tonight after dinner listening to it, and I only got through about 20, 30 minutes, but he actually started off by talking about fireworks, and it was a perfect intro to this. He didn't start off doing that, but it was a, I'd never thought about it this way, but it was a great illustration. Um, I don't know if any of you saw, we all know what a finale is, but if you've seen, I think it was this, uh, we were over at the Crisps house, maybe, and... Um, the finale in London, did y'all see it this year on, on the screen? I mean, it's, it was unlike any finale I've ever seen. It was like it went on for, most finales, fireworks finales go on like five, ten minutes. This went on for, I think I fell asleep. It was almost, I mean, it was so long. It was like the longest finale, and it was the most amazing finale. All over the sky. You have the, the eye, they call it the London eye, right? And the, you have Big Ben and Parliament in the, in the backdrop. But it was, and they had drone lights doing things. But it was a finale that... I think it went on for a solid 30 plus minutes. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Oh, fireworks finale, uh, ringing in the new year. Yeah. New year, new year's Eve. Um, it was unbelievable. So all that to say the teacher, he just describes what Paul's doing here in Romans eight at the end of the chapter, maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible, all of which is God's word as like a finale, like a fireworks finale. And that's a great illustration. It really, it really does feel like a finale. Tom Schreiner opens this section, he's a commentator, with with this confession. He says, The magnificent and exalted style in these verses is immediately apparent, and the beauty of the text may be unrivaled in all of Pauline literature. Uh, I I, I think of this as Paul's rhapsody. He's just rhapsodizing over the greatness of God's salvation in Jesus and over the beauty of what God's done in the gospel. And he just gets carried away, and it's amazing. He has full control of his pen as he's being carried away and rhapsodizing about our amazing salvation and and what kind of confidence this should give every believer, uh, no matter what we're going through. So I've titled this, um, you can see it there on your notes, but I've titled this this lesson, More Than Conquerors. And uh, again, according to Tom Schreiner, Paul is in these crescendo verses reflecting back on Romans 5, starting in 5.1, through, through 8.30. He's looking back on what he's written over the past few chapters, 8, 7, 6, and 5, 
and he's just kind of pulling it all together and saying, what a great salvation we have. Here's the difference it makes. We can't lose it. It's unlosable. Um, it doesn't matter what we go through. We can't lose it. And so let me, uh, let me go ahead and read that now with that brief introduction, and then we'll, we'll jump into just a teeny bit of review, and then we'll jump into the actual text. So I'm going to read. We're starting in verse 31 through the end of the chapter. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Let me take this off. Um, Paul says, what then shall we say? To these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 How good is that? You can just hear, you see the fireworks, the finale. <laughs> so let me review, before we jump into this text that I just read, uh, let me review this unbreakable chain of Romans 8, uh, 30 that um, I, I thought it was um, particular to Tim Keller, but I think it's, I think it's a pretty well, well-worn and well-used phrase, this unbreakable chain um, that is in Romans 8.30. So Paul says, let me just start in verse 29, just to back up a teeny bit from our text. For those whom he foreknew, ah, let me just start in 28. It's also good. Let me start in 28. Romans 8.28, he says, and we know that, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And notice it's this golden, this glorious, unbreakable chain. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if he's called you, he has foreknown you, he's predestined you, he's justified you, and he, he has already, it's as good as done, glorified you. So it's this chain that you can't have just one of those things. If you're justified, you've already been glorified. It's as good as done. If he's called you, he's predestined you, he's glorified you, you're justified. It's all of one piece, right? He'll, he'll always start what he finished. So it's just amazingly encouraging, unbreakable chain and just briefly to glance through these, like sort of like a rock, skipping a rock across water, because we've already gone over them some but last week. But um, let me just go over them briefly again, and then we'll jump into our text. Um, so foreknew, right? Um, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And we talked last week about how foreknew isn't, oh, he uh, knew that you're going to exist. Or even, even more than that, like he knew that you are going to at some point exist and choose to love him. That's not what this is saying. This is, uh, this is super clearly speaking in a relational sense. That's a very biblical. One way 
One of the things we, I mean, the number one interpretive rule for Scripture and the fancy word for interpretive uh, Scripture interpretation or text interpretation would be hermeneutics. So the, her, the number one hermeneutical or inter, interpretive rule of the Scriptures is, does anyone know? Interpret Scripture with Scripture. With Scripture. Okay, so Scripture interprets Scripture because if indeed it's God's Word, which it claims to be, only God only God's word can interpret God's word. It's, it's, it, you know, so that's the first thing we look to. Um, and so we look immediately in the context. We look in the whole book. We look in, you know, um, and then we look in the whole Bible. So um, throughout the scriptures, this term foreknew, even in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, when God, um, not even when God, but and we talked about this last week, but like when Abram knew his wife, Sarah. When Abram knew Sarai, when Abraham knew knew Sarah, um, it's it's talking obviously about a, a a such an intimate knowledge between man and wife, which is a by the way, it's a wonderfully elegant, deep and profound way of describing sex. It's I can't think of a better one. Um, no wonder the Bible uses it because it's so it's so elegant, but it speaks so much about how sex isn't just physical. It's a knowing on every single level of who we are. A multi-layered knowing that that really images to us the Lord and our relationship with the Lord and how and how we're made to know Him. But um, when Abram knew his wife, the, the fruitfulness of that knowledge was literally a kid, right? And so, um, like Jesus, but it's also used of of God for for others and in a negative way. Like Jesus in Matthew seven, I think it's verse twenty three. Um, those come to Him and and they claim they claim to be His, and He says one of some of the most terrifying words in Scripture. Away from me, I never depart from me. I never knew you. Right? He's not using a. It's not a. It's not a word of cognition. It's not like, hey, I, I never knew who you were. I didn't know you existed. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I didn't know you relationally. I don't have a relationship with you because you have not. You have not come to me on the terms that I have said, which is that I've. I've come as savior. You've not. You've refused me as such. Right. So it doesn't matter how many good works you've done, how many, how much power you've operated. And these are people that have cast out demons, all sorts of things. And he's like, but, but we've never entered into a relationship of deep intimacy through what I've offered my very self, right? So this is what, um, this is clearly what this term means here. So the fact that he has all that are his, he has known you in an intimate relational way since before you existed. Um, so Keller says for new means for loved, right? He has for loved you. How, how, how beautiful. Um, the word predestined, so whom he has, again, think chain, whom he's foreknew, he's also predestined. He's never predestined anyone that he hasn't also foreknown since before the beginning of time. Uh, predestined is prohorizo in the Greek. And again, I've, I'm skipping over these because we went over them last week, but it's prohorizo in the Greek, which I didn't give you last week. Um, and it means to determine a horizon and set out for it. So um, in his great love for us, God has determined for us a destination, right? So don't just think, oh, he saved me in the past. He loves me now. It literally speaks to the fact that he has determined before the beginning of time a destination for all who are his. And that is to be with him in glory, conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. He will, you will look like your brother and savior and Lord and King Jesus Christ. You will. If he has justified you, if he has called you, if he has foreknown you, you will. He will finish the work in you. You need to take so much heart from that, right? He will not. He doesn't do things halfway. It's all connected. It's the golden chain. Um, and so whom he is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, um, he is also called, verse 30. Whom he's predestined, he's called. So the same group that is justified 
and glorified. This is the same group here uh, of, of folks. Keller points out that um, though Paul has preached to many people, those who respond with deep conviction do so because they have been chosen and called. He has, um, and those whom he predestined, he's also called, and those whom he's called, he has also justified. Notice all this is past tense, right? All this is past tense. And we've talked a lot about the word justified. A lot of this is review for Paul, but he's piling up these terms and he's chaining them together. Um, to be justified is what? Let me ask the class. Let me ask you guys. What's, what, is, what does it mean that God justifies us in Christ? Through faith. It's being made right in his sight. And more specifically, to be declared right. It's a courtroom declaration of a status given. When, I, when the judge says not guilty, that doesn't, change, that doesn't change the composition of that person. It doesn't make them more good. Or when he says guilty, doesn't make them more bad. It's, it's a declaration given by an authority. Justification in, is a forensic word, and in this specific sense, it's a declaration of being right with God. It happens instantaneously the minute someone trusts in Jesus because, because what happens is by faith, his alien, right, outside righteousness, not yours, is conferred upon you. The word that theologians use is it's imputed to you. It counts as if it were yours, just like Abraham's. Just like Abraham's when he trusted in God's promise and God's righteousness, not Abram's, was credited to Abram as if it were his. That's what happens to you when you're justified. You're declared righteous, not with your righteousness, with the very righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just take your sin. He gives you something extremely positive and perfect, his own righteousness. Wow. Okay, so that's, that's a declaration of being right with God. Um, Keller says, to be pronounced and treated by God as legally righteous, and blameless because of the work of Christ in his life and death. So do you see how you cannot, that is your status. You are declared blameless with Jesus's own righteousness. So you cannot, you can't mess that up. Now, your abhorrence of sin should grow. Your sin isn't good. It can shade your relationship with God, but it can never sever. It it can never sever the alien righteousness that is yours in Christ and the fact that you that he that he is in you you're his child and he is taking you somewhere good he has a destination in mind for you and that is to look like jesus and to be with him forever um glorified finally so and he and those whom he justified he also those who he glor, he also glorified so those whom he has declared right it happens instantly the minute you trust in christ he skips over sanctification here which is like the process of the actually becoming more and more like jesus we're declared right instantly but sanctification takes place over our lifetime, and it's fits and starts. But it's, always, it's also just as much as the alien righteousness declared uh, on you from Jesus. Sanctification is every bit as much from Jesus. Even though it happens over time, it's taken, it's, it's taken through our union with him by faith. All right? But he skips over that, and he just says, you're glorified. If you're justified, if you're declared righteous instantly with his righteousness, the minute you trust in him, you will be glorified. But he doesn't say will be. We talked about this last week. He says glorify, past tense. And, and, and Lloyd-Jones says the tense in the last word is amazing. He's talking, the last word he means this, this last word in the, in the unbreakable chain. Glorified. The tense in this last word is amazing. It is the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. The most. He, why? Why? Why is it the most daring anticipation of faith that the New Testament contains? Just talk about the tense. What, what's... What, what does glorified mean, and what is, why is it so daring? Why is, 
Well, it's ARS passed, right? Yeah, it's passed. That, that it's means completed for all. So it's as good as done. It's, it's, it's good as done. It's absolutely done. But we being in a temporal state, right. we look forward to a future glorification. But God, um, when He sees it, sees it. He sees Christ. Yeah. Right. Who is at the right hand? Of yeah. The Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's glorified. He's glorified. finished. He's and glorified. Doesn't Paul in Ephesians say that we're seated in the we're, heavenly. In Ephesians two, we're <laughs> seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We. That's our reality. And that really ties into what Paul's saying here. Your reality is that you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies if indeed you have trusted Christ. That No matter what you're going through here, no matter what sin, no matter what misery, no matter what suffering, no matter how you feel or what your circumstances, no matter if you've taken three steps back in sanctification this week, you are seated with Christ. You are glorified. And, you are, and he is pulling you that direction because of the reality of who Jesus is and you're seated with him and what he's done. So... <clears throat> And glorified, it just means what happens to you when you see Christ face to face, you will become as he is. You see? You, you, you will, and there's so much wrapped up in that, and we're not going to belabor it because we're going to move on, but glory, glory in the Hebrew is kavod. This is the Greek, doxa, but they're related. Um, there's a luminosity in, in, in the New Testament idea of glory that, it, it's like C.S. Lewis says, in the way to glory, um, it's, it's not a electric, living electric light bulb. It's, you know, when things glow, like babies, you know, they have a certain glow about them. Mom was showing us um, McIntyre's picture of him smiling. There's a certain glow and, and sweetness about a kid that's not jaded yet. And, and he's just happy or she's happy. And there's, there's a certain glow to a saint that's been walking with the Lord. And, and Moses' face glowed when he came down from the mountain. Not because he, he's an electric living light bulb, because he had been with God, and, and, and whoever you're with rubs off on you for good or ill. When you were face-to-face with the Lord, it changes you. It literally changed the way he looked. And he was, there was more reality to him that was beaming forth from his insides. Um, the idea of the Hebrew kavod, literally like a rock has more kavod than a feather. It, means, it literally means weight. And it's used in that sense throughout the, it's used in a variety of ways. It has a wider semantic range, but it's used for weight. Like, you know, like a, a stone has more kavod than a feather. But the idea, when it's used as glory, it means that God has the most kavod in the universe because he is the most real and substantial and weighty. You say of somebody like, man, he has gravitas or she has gravitas. That's a compliment. Uh, there's an august or weighty presence to someone who is dignified and, and worthy of respect. But like, like on the other side of it, um, if somebody is um, uh, trivial, you know, no, sin hollows us out and excoriates us. It makes us light and tinny, to use a word that C.S. Lewis uses. And, and like, like, uh, like Psalm 1 says, it makes us like, like chaff, like the, the very light part that comes off of wheat, that just a gust of wind just blows away. But the Lord being in his presence and having him inside of us and being sanctified as, as from one degree of glory to the next, it makes us more and more and more real. Like, like Pinocchio, like he's, he's a wood doll and then he, he becomes a real, a real boy. Like that's a, a picture of what happens to us when we're born a second time. And, and the more we become like Jesus, the, the more gravitas, a reality and kavod we have. And God has the most in the universe. And so when, we're, when you're glorified, you're going to be... St- 100% substantial and, and glowing with the righteousness and goodness and beauty of the living God. And every, and, every, and every person will be. So that's already done. There's a sense in which that's already done. So just relax is what I'm saying, is what Paul's saying. 
Relax and strive with everything you have. Relax and strive, you see? But Paul talks about both those things. Strive, but not with the desperation, thinking like, maybe I'll make it, but knowing like, it's, it's, it's already done. Like, strive with an emancipated joy and peace, knowing that you are encased in Christ. I don't know if I've ever used this illustration. <laughs> um, it's not the illustration of leaving the room, don't worry. I don't know that I've ever used this illustration, but have I told you about the sh- my friend Sugar Squirrel? Uh, it, in, in university, he had um, he was a friend at university, and he had wood floors, and he had a sugar squirrel that's like a little thing. It's like it was like like that big, really cute, and like a chipmunk kind of thing. And he was in a he was in a ball that was a plastic clear ball like this big, and he would just pedal along in it throughout across the wood floors he kind of owned the place and it really seemed like that because they had a dog and the dog would be like rawr, rawr, rawr. The, the little sugar squirrel drove the dog crazy the dog would try to get at it but he was just like <laughs> kind of like you know uh is it is jerry the the mouse when tom and jerry yeah kind of like jerry with tom you know and um because he was encased he was totally protected and that's a picture I get sometimes of how we're encased in Christ, you know? And that's, carry that through as Paul talks because he's like, man, we could be in all sorts of trouble, but we're encased in Christ and we're headed somewhere good. So um, so in response, I, 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 I went through that litany because in response to this, so we, pick, we picked up in 31, but Paul's been moving. So in response to all these things and more since chapter five and really since chapter one, Paul asked five questions. And those five questions are in, um, well, Find, find them for me. They're in verses 31 through 35. Call them out, starting in verse 31. Just call out, read out the question, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say? Okay, so God verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? And read, yeah, finish it, Dad. If God is for us, who is against us? Who can be against us, okay? Verse 32. I would like to respond to that. A lot of people can be against you when you're for Christ. Mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah. So I'm not sure I totally agree with well, okay, I, he understands that, but he's, I think he's speaking in an ultimate sense. Yeah, yeah, in a comparative sense. Yes, 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 yes. Pedantic, pedantic. Okay, okay, 32. What about 32? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, he's given us his own son for goodness sakes, for God's sakes, can I say in a, in a very real sense. He's given us his own son. Will he not also give us everything else in due time, right? Okay, that's question two. What about question three? Who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who trusts you. Okay, so who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 33. What about the next, the fourth question? Who is to condemn? Okay, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, to carry on. Christ Jesus is the one uh, who died. More than that, who was raised, right? Uh, and what's he saying there? And who is at the right hand of God? <laughs> yeah, he's like, who's to condemn? Hey, in other words, he's saying Christ was condemned for us, right? So, so, so you were condemned in Christ, so you can't be condemned a second time. And then last one? Oh, did you say it, Gene? Hey, well, they said... It, What's they the fifth? I think it's a continuation of that. Um, he, he is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. All of the yes. love all sums up in that, gets to this point, if Jesus... Is for us, then we don't need anything else. Right. He's the one who intercedes. We literally don't need anyone else for us if God Himself is for us in Christ. And He and we're going to land on. Don't worry, we're going to talk about all this. We're definitely going to talk about interceding for us, uh, in which we we touched on last time because it's somebody else is interceding for us. 
Who was that? You remember from the last passage? Holy Spirit, yeah. right? Who is the same God. You know, the doctrine of the mutual indwelling, um, the co-inherence, the perichoresis, circumcessio, is known as in different languages with different words. But the fact that not only, and I'm glad I said that because it, it occurred to me like while I was driving or showering or something this week, that um, I, I missed something big on that doctrine. And so just pause real quickly. When I describe the doctrine of mutual indwelling, which is the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, but so does Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So does the third person. Which one? Yes. Right? Whatever, what I said is, hey, part of the doctrine of the mutual indwelling of God is that whatever one person is doing, the other is doing. God is never acting against himself, which is part, again, part of the mystery of the cross, which is that Christ was abandoned by his father on the cross. So that's, that's a mystery. And, and that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons it is such a mystery. But, but what I didn't, I don't think, say is that the, the, one of the precious things about the doctrine, maybe the heart of the doctrine of coherence or mutual indwelling is that not only does God act in concert in his persons, whatever the spirit is doing, the father and son are doing and vice and et cetera, et cetera, that also coherence, mutual indwelling that the, the son and the father are in the spirit, the spirit and the father are in the son, the son and the spirit are in the father. There is, and you can, you can see a lot of that in John 17 when God when the, Jesus says, just as you are in me and I are in you father and I'm in you father. So may they be in us. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fellowship and an intimacy of an indwelling nature. You know, in John 1, in the prologue, John says that he, no one has ever seen God, but he who is in the bosom of the Father. Like, literally, it's, it's, it's this picture of Christ being, you know, laying his head on the Father's chest, being as, this picture of being as close to someone as you possibly can. He's in the Father. Um, he has made him known. He has made him fully known, right? So, all that to say... We've, we've identified the five questions. Um, now, let me, let me move on. Why can nothing separate us um, from the love of God? In a word, because our salvation is based not on who we are. Now, I'm taking this from Keller. I'm not quoting directly, but not on, our salvation is not based on who we are or what we have done, thank God, but on who God is and what he has done. That's why, that's why we can't be separated from the love of God. Um, Keller, now I am directly quoting Keller. He says, because God loves us simply because of his choice, not because of anything. And we're going to get much more to this next, in the next two weeks in Romans 9. He loves us simply because of his choice. Let this humble you. Let this sink in. Not because of anything in us. God did not see something beautiful in Cheryl or Taylor. I could go around the room and say, man, that is a stellar person. I'm going to. Now, that sounds kind of nice. It strokes my ego a little bit until I think, wait a minute, what if I lose that? What if I sin? It puts me on extremely shaky ground salvifically. And that's not true. It's based on God. Salvation is, is, is based on God from God alone. So we can't lose it. Because God loves us simply because of his choice, not because of anything in us, and he says, which may change, nor anything around us, which may change. Now, verse 31, and we're going back to the beginning here. Verse 31 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, the, I keep going back to this. I, the logic is impeccable. It puts steel in me and has steeled many a saint throughout church history. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, mom took some, maybe some issue. I think maybe she was being kind of funny, but uh, with this, but a little bit funny, but it feels like, Hey, when, when the world's against you, it feels like that's real and it is real, but it feels like, well, Paul might, it seems like you're being a little cavalier here, but on a, on a purely logical level, if God is, if there is a God and he is who he says he is, which is he has all power. 
If he's for us. Now, every, everyone else, including Satan himself, can be arrayed against you. But if he is for you, ultimately, who can stand against us? Who can be against us? In the end, no one. He can crazy. He can hurt. He can hurt you. And ultimately, he, he, has to pass through, he has to pass through nail-pierced hands. He, everything Satan does to a child of God has to, has to go through nail-pierced hands. Um, so he's, Paul's speaking in ultimate terms here, and I just love how razor-sharp his logic is. And I was thinking of it as logic on fire. It's a, it's a logic tonic. It's a bracing. It's, I, I've described it as a torrent of forceful bracing logic. A logic tonic continues like a freight train of joy, hope, and love. Um, it's like Paul is pushing courage into us. Whatever suffering or challenges we may face, like a parent pushes medicine into a child's mouth with a syringe. I know every parent here has done that. At some point, you, you, you get that. It's not the spoon. Like the spoon doesn't work anymore. So you get the syringe and you, you know. I know you're thinking of Malachi right now. Um, eat it up. Savor it. You know, dwell on it. Memorize it. Stand on it. Build your life on it. This is, this is. Cur- verbal courage and, 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 it's, and it's logic on fire. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, and on he goes. He, verse 32, who did not spare his own son. The father gave his son to save you. He, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Gave him up to be tortured. Gave him up to even have the father's own wrath that we deserve poured out on his son. And it pleased, I mean, Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father to do it because, not because he's a sadist, far from it. He's perfect in his love, but so great was his love for us, and he knew that it was the only way for us to be saved. So it pleased him to crush his son, whom he dearly loved and perfectly loved and continues to love, to save us. He gave him up for us all. He did that for you, okay? So how will, Paul says, he not also with him graciously give us all things. You may feel like, and it's true in a sense, you don't have a lot in this life. Other people have more. You may feel like it's just Alexander's very bad, horrible, nasty, no good day. What's that book? You know, that book in that movie. It may feel like just one bad thing after another. But if you have, if God has given you his own son in Christ and, he's, and he, is, he has treated Christ the way that we deserve to be treated, and he has given you this, this whole chain of things that are still future, but they're as good as done because they're in Christ. So they might as well just be put in the past tense. If he has given you his very son and secured your salvation, hey, actually, you're going to get, you've already gotten Christ. It's a deposit on the fact that you're going to get everything else besides. You know? Um, what is that proverb that says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your understanding, all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's not what I'm thinking of. It's, um, I guess there is some Old Testament, but Jesus says, um, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then fill in the, and all these things will be added to you. And that's, he's speaking in ultimate terms. All these things will be added to you. Christ now, amazing blessing now, peace, these things that money can't buy, uh, and, and uh, rich relationships, full forgiveness. But then one day, man, he will give us the morning star. He will give us a new name. He will bring us into a new creation that we're made for. And, and with him, our king, face-to-face, physically. And, and we will have an eternity to, to be in that new creation and to reign and to rule and to, and to play and to make decisions and to adventure and to explore and to build and to rest and all the, all the other stuff. Um, so... 
verses 32 and following, God is, on, is only withholding good things now or giving you bad things now, suffering. Right? Suffering's an evil. He, he allows it. He uses it. He ordains it. Um, he choreographs it, though it's an evil for our good, to prepare you for future lasting happiness. So he only gives us good things or bad things for a time here to prepare us for future lasting happiness. St. Augustine said something like, God uh, always uh, does for us and gives to us that which ultimately will make us most happy. So even, even the worst of things now, the most painful things now, whether he's taking things away that we love or giving us things and walking us through a fire, uh, he's only giving us the thing that, if we, that will make us most happy if we only knew it one day. And a lot of that is like it's, it's knocking off our edges and, our, and, and scraping off our burrs to make us more like Jesus. Because Keller says like ultimately holiness and happiness are inextricably, inextricably linked. They're riveted together. Like you can't be happy without being holy. And holiness comes through, it comes through suffering most of the time. Um, and so my sister says it this way, like God's uh, special people get special treatment. Like I, I treat my kids with more discipline because they're special people to me. I love them more than I love my neighbor's kids, you know? And so I, I'm harder on them, not because I hate them more, it's because I love them more, and I'm taking them somewhere. I mean, God's perfect. He does that perfectly. Uh, Keller says, the almighty God of the universe has purpose to make us perfectly holy and gloriously happy. These two things are inseparably linked, and literally nothing can thwart God's purpose for us. So verse 34 um, I skipped 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So, and again, God's the one who declares you right. Who can bring a charge against you? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And we'll land there. Um, Jesus died more. He rose. He reigns. He is interceding for us. What a thought to know that even as we encounter the litany of things um, uh, life in this broken world brings us, the litany embedded in verse 35, Jesus is interceding for us. The opposite of frowning, arms crossed, foot stamping. His full humanity continues to matter for us immensely and will forever. So what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that when it's wrapped up into Jesus is interceding for you right now? He's, that's a current, like present, progressive. He is currently interceding for us right now. And uh, what, why is it important that he remains fully human? He's, a, he's the God-man. He didn't lose his manhood when he ascended to heaven. He didn't become spirit, ethereal. He is a spiritual man, but with a real body that he ate fish and bread and... Uh, sorry? Drank wine. drank wine. Well, he I'm did sure before this. the cross. Yeah. But he said, I won't drink wine again. In the Last Supper, right, right before the cross, he said, I won't drink this again, of the fruit of the vine again, until uh, I'm, with, I'm with you in my Father's kingdom, right? So, yeah, I mean, he, he ate, he drank. Um, Peter says that in Acts 10, he's like, we ate, we drank with him. We saw him crucified. I mean, heck, I, I, I denied him three times. Um, he, he cooked me fish, he didn't say this, but he cooked me fish by the sea, you know, John 21. So, um, he has a body. Why, why is it important that Christ, who is interceding for us, continues to be a man? Why is that important? Similar to the reason why Christ has to be in verse 3 made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Mm -hmm. So in that he has to be in the likeness of sinful flesh to be an appropriate substitute. Likewise, he has to be um, fully bodily and glorified to be an effective high priest for us and intercede for us. He continues to represent you. He can't be a representative 
He can't be a, a true, genuine representative. Of Without him. being one of us, right? He, he can't intercede. Only a man can represent men. Only a human can represent humans. Um, and he, knows he stands in your place. He knows how to intercede because he's... That's right. He's been there. Go book, read the book of Hebrews. So he continues to represent you before God the Father. And let's dig in this a little bit. Um, so he's currently interceding for us, the opposite of frowning, arms crossed, foot stamping. And, um, you know, I actually, it's funny. These are all notes from... Um, I got to speed it up. These are all notes from last week, and I actually didn't even pay attention to him. I just wrote this morning, just started writing more. Um, so this is all just prelim, but let me say this on Christ's intercession. This word interceding means to approach and appeal. So Jesus is as close as can be to his father. He's at his right hand. He's at the right hand of power, right? His right hand, because God's not right or left-handed, but right hand on most people is the hand of their power. It's their strong hand. So he's saying he's at the strong hand of God. He has the controls of the universe. And if he's representing you, so do you, in a sense, right? And so he's at the Father's strong hand, appealing, the word means, constantly to God his Father on your behalf through what he's done and who he is. Not on your merits, on his merits, because you're encased in him. He represents you. So he's not arguing your merits. He's arguing for you on his merits, the merits of his life and death for you. Now, that's the word appeal. What about the word approach? It also means approach, to approach and to appeal. Approaching a potentate in the ancient Near East was a terrifying thing. You know, there was, it wasn't like a president with limited powers. It was like, dude, if you're an ancient Near Eastern potentate, king, emperor, you had almost in your domain like unlimited powers, right? Has anyone read the book of Esther? In that bit where Esther is like the, the favored, she's one of the favored wives uh, of King Artaxerxes. The Persian king. Yeah, Mordecai. Mordecai's like, hey, in this hour of hour of peril, you need to go approach the king and like and beseech him on behalf of. You need to intercede for the Jews, or else we're all going to die. And she, and what does she say? I can't do that. Yeah, she's like, hey, if he if he doesn't if he doesn't point out the scepter and invite me, I can't just go. Even as his favorite wife, I can't just go in and out. Like if I go on my own initiative, and it could be doomsday for me. I could be off of my head. And he's like. Well, if you don't, then somebody, God's going to raise somebody else up. But, and, and so she's like, fast for me, pray for me. So she goes, and he holds out the scepter, and she finds favor. and he brings. But um, it was a serious thing to approach an ancient Near Eastern potentate. Well, this is, Jesus is approaching God Almighty, right? He's Because appro- the word means approaching. He's approaching God Almighty. And to, again, to do so without admission, without proper standing, can be deadly. And it absolutely is before God. But Jesus has perfect standing before the Father. And you're encased in him. That means you have perfect standing before the Father because of Jesus. And so you approach in his name. That's why always when we pray, a lot of times we say, sometimes to us it's just a formality, but we are encased in Christ. We come in his name. That's why Paul, I think the count on like how many times he says in Christ in his letters is just, it's huge. It's like 91 or something even higher. But we're, everything we do, when it comes to having standing before the living God, we're in Christ by faith. And so he, we approach, he approaches for us. We approach in him. He appeals based on his merits. Um, he appeals for you based on his merits, not, not yours. Uh, right. And, and you are now adopted in Jesus. You now have his standing. You don't have some other standing. You have the, the very standing of Jesus Christ, right? He's paid the bill. 
and he's given us his own righteousness. Um, okay, let me, I have some things here, and I'll, maybe I'll keep this up, but, um, so let me, let me look here and see what, what I want to hit on before we move on. Um, as, I, as I pause for just a few seconds, look over what we've gone over. Any, any comments, any questions? Can I just make a point about that? You cited John something where Jesus says, I'm in the Father and you're in me. Yeah, John 1, 18, yeah. Or, or no, John, 1, John 17, yeah. John 14, 20 pretty much says the same thing. And, you know, it's easy just to blaze over it and not really think about what it means. So I drew it out. And Jesus says, I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. That's what it looks like. This is us, this squirrely looking line here. We've got the Father and Jesus outside of us and Jesus in us. Mm-hmm. We're a surrounded. Mm-hmm. We are encased. That's the picture. Yeah, we're indwelt I and surrounded. Right there. By the, by the, by the triune God. I mean, I've placed over that verse so many times. And I'm like, so good. Write that out. Well, it, it's very sing so you get, I think you get caught up in the inevitable of the words rather than the actual meaning. Cause I, I understand what you're saying because I've read that so many times that it's, and it just, da 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 da, you know, it's just sort of. Well, you just don't think about what it really looks no. like or it looks like every high school biology. Yeah, I was thinking that. Like a bullseye slash a biology textbook yeah, illustration. It's for you. That's for you. But I like the the bad things happening. I mean, I don't like those things, of course. Those instead uh, in life where it's a turmoil and there is storm, and but he's coming with me through them. He's coming, yeah, <laughs> with you. And that's, uh, right. He's with you through them, and he's using them because of his cross. Think about the worst thing ever in history: the cross. We crucified God. It was the ultimate train wreck in the cosmos. And he used that for the ultimate good, to open up salvation for anyone who comes to him. So he's expert in, because of the cross, because of the cross, he's expert in using every bad thing you're going through, he's putting you through because he loves you. And he's, he's not, it's not being wasted. It's not just like, hey, I'm going to get you through this. Hey, this isn't going to steal your salvation. It's like, no, I'm using this. I'm using this to make you more like Jesus, to make you more like me, to make you more like my son, which right? Is, which is really the most loving thing he can do for us is to make us like so before moving past intercession at the end of verse 34 and on to verse 35 and following to a close let me let me just spend a, a couple minutes on verses 33 through 34 as i look at this other part of my notes here um, in 33 and 34, where Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then who is to condemn? And he goes on. Paul is circling back to our justification, our standing before God, which we've talked about and which he's talked about. Um, if God is the one who justifies us, then who can condemn us, Paul says. The answer to this rhetorical question is no one. No one. Absolutely no one. No one and no thing. No spirit. You know, what is, what is Satan, Satan in the Hebrew Satan, what does it mean? Adversary. Yeah, adversary or accuser. He, his job, he loves to accuse us. And he can bring up all sorts of, he knows of sins that you committed that you've forgotten about. You didn't even know were sins. 
He, he knows. And he will bring them all up. The only standing you have, and it is a sufficient standing to shut him up, is that you are standing on the merits and righteousness of the living God in Christ Jesus. And that's Martin Luther. I wish I had it here. I had a great, the former had a great quote about he was being accused, feeling accused by Satan and probably being accused by the very Satan for the work he was doing. And he said, yes, what of it? Everything you say is true and much more besides. You've left out a few things, buddy. <laughs> but I'm not pleading on my own righteousness. I'm pleading on the very righteousness of Christ and his merits. That's our foundation. So if, we're, if, if God's not going to condemn us because Jesus has been condemned in your place, remember, he wasn't just putting lipstick on a pig. He was killing the old you. It's gone. It's dead. And so uh, to, to raise to life a new man in Christ or a new woman um, no one can condemn us if we're in Christ. No condemnation ultimately sticks to us if it is God who justifies us. His verdict is ultimate and final. In verse 34, Paul circles, is circling back to Romans 4.25 where he says, Christ, uh, where here he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died and more who was raised. Now, um, so what I mean by that is in Romans 4.25, he says he was, he was crucified for our I don't know if the word is sins. Let me just go ahead and read it, right? Jesus Christ, why was, he, why was he killed? Was he killed because of his record, because of something he'd done? No. He was delivered up, verse 25 of Romans 4, for our trespasses. So that's why he was killed. Why was he hanging down on the cross? Because of what I did. He was dying for me. And he was raised for our justification. In other words, you can say the word because of. He was raised because of our justification. In other words, because his death makes me just before God, because he's fully paid, for all my wrongdoing, his, he was raised. In other words, when he was raised, it was sign and proof that God had accepted Christ's payment for you and that you have been declared righteous. That, his resurrection is a guaranteed proof of the emancipation and the right standing of anyone who looks to, who looks to Jesus Christ for their salvation. He's resurrected. His, the tomb is empty. It's a guarantee. You can hang on to that. So, so Paul says here in, in this verse, in Romans uh, 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died and, who, and more who was raised. So more than died, he was raised. So two things on that. He died for a reason. Not only to forgive, but to make all things new. He didn't just die to pay for our sins. He died to be the first fruit of a new humanity in a new creation that's free from sin and death, the way God intended it to be, right? He died to rise. And if he died for you, he's also risen for you. You're, gonna, you're going to where he is. And indeed, the resurrected Christ is already in you. The Holy Spirit's the down payment of that. Um, so he, not only did he die to forgive, but to make all things new, Revelation 21, to make all things sad come untrue, to quote Tolkien. Jesus didn't just die to take bad away. We talked about this, to expiate. That's a theological word for like to wipe clean. He didn't just die to take bad away. He died to reconstitute us in all creation and to bring us an abundant eternal life, um, to bring us into an abundant eternal life in this remade world as remade people, his people, his children. Um, So there is a deep no, but there is a deeper yes still, the resurrection beneath the deep no of the cross. Um, So... Secondly, though, his resurrection is proof that God accepted his condemnation, as I said, in your place. Right? So when Christ was raised, it meant that God said, oh, his death counts for Gene. Um, There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Uh, of course, I'm quoting here from the very beginning of this chapter, which ideologically Paul is circling back to as, as he closes the chapter. At the end of verse 34, we see that Jesus hasn't just done things for us in the past. Uh, he'd been crucified and raised from the dead, but he is currently doing something for us, as we just talked about in verse 35, or at the end of verse 34. He is interceding for us at the hand of power in the universe. He remains a man, as we've talked about, and as a man, he is representing and advocating for you. He's approaching God for you. He's appealing to God for you right now, if indeed you're in him through faith. Um, so starting in verse 35, Paul is running toward the finish of this great chapter. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's, the, it's a question that dominates, right? Um, it, and it resonates throughout the rest of this chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he just riffs on that, like, like, like a firework uh, finale. The answer is, the answer to who shall separate us from the love of Christ is, again, no one. No one and nothing, including, and I said this last week, I kind of glanced over it, and I'm not going to do much more than glance over it now, but included in nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And for that, for that list, you can look at verse 35. You can look at verse 38 and verse 39 as he ends the chapter. It's, a, it, it's supposed to be, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's supposed to be comprehensive, and then it stands for everything. In other words, there's nothing that can separate you, including you. You can't separate yourself from the love. Believe me, believe me, if you could, we've tried, and if we could, we would have, because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We're haters of God. We're insolent. We, uh, we hate God so much that when he comes to this earth, we crucify him. If we could separate ourselves from God, we would, but we can't. His love, his salvific love for us is greater than our own hatred of him. You are not greater than God or his salvation of you. And this is a great idea to help serve as an entree into the next chapter, chapter 9, on God's election. <clears throat> um, and now that's, it's a gracious, let me just say this as a, as by way of like a gloss before we jump into it next week. The doctrine of election or God's choosing us before the foundation of the world, it's a gracious doctrine. It's often presented as like a hard doctrine, but if God didn't choose us, the scriptures are clear, what, what would be, become of us if God didn't choose some of us to be saved? Yeah, if we're all dead in our sins and trespasses, if we're haters of God, if when he comes we crucify him, if he didn't choose us to be his children and save us all by himself with no help from us, no one would be saved. So election is a gracious doctrine. Um, God has overcome our deadness and sin and insensibility and rebellion and hatred of him. That's what the cross means. Uh, he, did, he used all of that to save us. That's what the incarnation means. That's what election means. It's what it touches on. It's a doctrine. They are doctrines of love. If you look at Ephesians um, 1, verses 4 and 5, it's, Paul says in that letter, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. I love how that, that verse begins and ends. In love, not in hatred, not in sternness. In love, he has predestined you for adoption to make you his kid, right? And then Paul adds to himself, like to bring you to himself because he loves you so much. Because of his love and his love makes us lovely. Um, election is a doctrine of the great love and the powerful love of God, which is more powerful than our sin and rebellion. So moving in then to verse 36, where Paul says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Um, donkey me, I didn't bring, 
I, I just brought my Greek New Testament. I don't even have a full Bible, which is crazy because I'm teaching the Bible here. But um, Paul quotes here from, anyone know? Can you tell on your side note or from your, from your uh, notes at the bottom? Where's Paul quoting from here in the Old Testament? It says Psalm 44. Okay, so Psalm 44, I think it's, is it verse 22? 22. Um, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long as sheep to be slaughtered. So actually, I might steal Jordan's Bible since he's not here. Briefly, I'll give it back to him, I promise. Um, he's going to wonder why it's not on Romans. So, in Psalm 44, it really helps when the New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament, go back to the Old Testament and read, read around it. Um, this, is, um, this context here in this psalm is super important. It opens this up. This context is, can anyone tell from just glancing at the psalm what the context of the psalm is? it starts with God's past faithfulness they're recounting his faithfulness they're hanging on to it because why what does it move into starting in verse 9 they feel like God's rejected them this is a people in exile the context is is God's people Israel bitterly crying out to him for having let their foes defeat and exile them that's 9 through 16 especially verse 11 verse 11 says you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. The bit Paul quotes is embedded in this lament. There is hope here, but it is awash in feeling abandoned by God. Help us, God. Indeed, the very next verse in the psalm after the one that Paul quotes is this. Awake, why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. And then the psalmist goes on. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? It feels like God has forgotten them. Do you ever feel like that? Like, man, God, you've completely forgotten me. One verse later, this plea so pregnant with meaning in light of the cross. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And that actually closes the psalm. Who would have thought that God would so resoundingly respond to these desperate cries for redemption, for his intervention, so as to become a man? and allow himself to be put to death on a cross to bear the sins of his people. So what Paul does here is he takes this statement about being slaughtered like sheep, and he sees it imbued with hope rather than hopelessness or near despair because of what Christ has done. And the reason he can do that is the reason that we can do that, because the people of Israel in exile, they, they were on the backside of the cross. They had no idea, even though it was prophesied in their, in their Bibles, like that God would so not abandon them that he would become one of them, enter into our pain and misery, and endure the wrath of God for us, and become our own sin, and be tortured and tormented in our place on the cross. Like, and so when they cry out for redemption, they're hanging on by their fingernails. But they're crying out to the same God who would willingly be placarded on a Roman cross for them. And so Paul knows that. And so rather than, he takes from that verse, but with all of the hope that the cross gives to us and the resurrection. And rather than being like, hey, we're suffering like, like, um, like sheep to be slaughtered, he's seen that God himself chose to be. He came, he came as a sheep to be slaughtered himself. And so rather than suffering and going, man, God, we're really, it seems like you're angry with us, you've forgotten us. Because of what Jesus has done, uh, Paul can say with that same verse, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, Paul says, through him who loved us. And look at the way that he loved us. 
he, and, and what is Paul saying? He could have said, I think we talked on this last week briefly, briefly. He could have said, through him who loves us. Why is it in the past tense? What's he referring to? Through, look at, you know, in all these things are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. Past tense. What, what's he? When he hung on the cross. Yeah, he's referring to the cross and he's saying, he, he who has written this letter, I mean, go back to, he's written this book to the Roman church. Go back to Romans 117. His very thesis for the book is, what does the gospel show us? It shows us the righteousness of God. It shows us how he takes sin deadly seriously and it all has to be paid for. And so he came and paid for it himself. That is the thesis of the book. But at the same time, he's saying, but the cross also shows us the love of God, the great love of God. And, and so Paul can say no amount of pain or sin or, or no amount of pain or suffering or even our own sin can not only can it not separate us from God, but it cannot make me think. I mean, Paul, Paul was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was left for dead. He was stoned so bad multiple times outside of the city that they literally, people stoning him, by the way, they were stoning him to death. It was execution. They were so convinced he was dead that they walked away. And then he got up and kept going and like dusted himself off and was preaching in the next city. He said, let's move on. But I'm saying this guy was beaten with rods. He was whipped within an inch of his life. He was shipwrecked. He was sleepless nights. He was worried for the churches on and on and on. If you want to read about it, read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. On and on, read about it in the book of Acts. And he never thinks, man, God must hate me. I must be not in God's good graces because he has, he's on this side of the cross and he knows that actually... Christ has redeemed suffering. And because of, and we know that Jesus was greatly loved and he went to the cross. So we actually pick up our crosses and follow God. And we know that he's not only using all that stuff, but it's not a mark of his disfavor. Now, sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. I'm not saying that's not the case. But Paul, he sees how the cross revolutionizes suffering. Because the ancient world was basically in the book of Job. It was basically like, or like Jesus' disciples were like, which man, they come across the blind man and they're like, which man sinned, this guy or his parents that he was born blind? That was the ancient, even among the Jews of the day, their misreading of the scriptures. Sorry, I moved your Bible. That was, uh, I saw Cheryl uh, smirking over there looking at you. I, I used it. I used it. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't turn back because I'm lecturing. Um, Paul's, uh, Peter, Jesus' own disciples see the blind man and they're like, this guy must have sinned. He's suffering. He must have done something wrong. Job's friends, you're suffering What'd you do wrong? Jesus changes all that. He changes that completely. And that's what Paul's hooking into here. He's like, what now? It's what you're doing right. Yeah, yeah. So much it can be a badge of honor. Like, like God, special people get special treatment. He's, he's taking extra care with you. Hammer and tongs. Ting, 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 ting. He's making you into this amazing sword, this weapon, this, this you know, shaft that he's going to do damage with for the kingdom. And he's making you like his son, Jesus, who who got the hammer and tongs as a perfect man without sin taken to him to learn obedience to the things he suffered. And so it's the intolerable compliment, like C.S. Lewis says. It's the intolerable, what would you say? That's why we need to do and get blessed and we can go and we can know it's not because if I'm in Christ, it's not because God hates me. It's actually because he loves me and he's using it. And so Paul wasn't losing heart. In fact, he's saying nothing can separate me from love of God. I know he's using this and he's, ma- he's taking me somewhere good, right? He's taking me to that far horizon, to his very self. And so um, he, okay. So therefore, let me just read this. Paul takes 
this statement about being slaughtered like sheep and sees it imbued with hope rather than hopelessness, he can say no, and all these things were more than conquerors. And I've already said this. So let me find my place. Um, so God, he says, uh, in all, in all things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's pointing to the cross. He loves us still, but Paul is accentuating the way that he loved us once for all in that real event in the past, in time and sp- in space and time. On the cross, he displayed for all the world to see his perfect love. What does Romans 3, what is it, verse 24 or 25 say? God the Father put forward. He put forward his son. He demonstrated his own love for us, and he put forward his own son. He placarded him uh, for the world to see. In perfect love um, for all the world to see, he put forth his son. Um, to, to die in our place, to bear the Father's wrath in our place, to become our sin. So for all who come to him by faith and allow, um, and allow him to wrap his nail-scarred, nail-scarred hands excuse me, around them in his invincible love. Um, because God himself has suffered and died for us, our being slaughtered for his sake no longer seems senseless. It no longer seems like he's abandoned us. Indeed, we know that he has not. Far from it. He's come to be with us forever. Um, in verse 37, Paul takes us up a notch, even by saying, not only can we not be separated from Christ, but we are more than conquerors. Takes it up a notch. Through him who loved us. Actually, not only can our suffering not take us away from Jesus, can not take away our salvation, who is Jesus himself, but they actually mean that we conquer and that we more than conquer. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So he's flipping this whole ancient idea of if you're suffering, God must be mad at you on his head because of the cross, because of the incarnation. Jesus tells us, he just, he turns that inside out. Again, I'm not commenting on the fact that sometimes we do suffer for our sin, but hey, if we're in Christ, even that, even that God will use. Remember, remember Romans eight twenty eight. even that God will use for your good. For, for those who love him because he loves you and he has called you according to his purpose. Let me, let me wind down with a few, a few things. Meditating on verses 38 and 39 um, that close this glorious chapter. Um, our only conclusion can be that God's love must then be the most powerful thing in existence. This is what the cross shows us. This in a book devoted to the proposition that, like I said, that the gospel preeminently shows us God's righteousness. At the same time, it shows us his great invincible love for the elect. Who are any, and who is the elect? Anyone who runs into the open arms of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, dead, and risen, ascended, and reigning, and soon to return. Anyone who runs into his arms. Um, he died and rose for you, for his church, his bride, for his creation that he is making new and that he will finish to make new. Um, let me close with a couple quotes from Keller. Um, and then we can see what time it is. We can, we can definitely have time for some questions and comments. Let me close with this, um, with, with Keller's close of this section in this chapter. He says, he says, consider how practical. So just slow down, come down with me off this amazing fireworks display. He says, consider how practical Paul is being. And again, he's moving us back to what I started with, which is like this logic on fire. Like, who can condemn us? 
if Jesus was condemned for us, God's for us, who can be against us? This is this razor sharp logic, right? No matter, you need to hang on to that logic and meditate on it no matter what you're going through, right? It's the logic of Christ for you. No matter what you're going through, Christ for me means if God's not for me, nobody can be. Consider how practical Paul's being. He is saying, friend, have you been called? Have you found the gospel coming home to your soul with power? Have you asked God to justify you? Fine. Now realize this. That would not and could not have happened unless the great God of heaven had set his love upon you in the depths of eternity before time. So if, if you've looked to Christ and he has declared you righteous with the righteousness of Christ, not only has that happened to you, but, and not only has he made you his child, but he set his love on you. The fact is he has set his love on you before the foundation of the world, not based on anything you've done. Right, so Keller goes on. He set his love upon you in the depths of eternity before time and is now infallibly working out his plan to live with you forever in his family. And then he continues to a close, Keller does. He says, the purpose of the questions is almost, I love this, it's almost to beat us out of our disbelief that we are saved totally by grace and are therefore completely safe to face life without fear. It is incredible, relentless, intense logic. I came across this at the end of my time, just at the end of today. I, with a, I had already, at the beginning of the time, gone, I love the logic of this. Keller says the same thing. It's unavoidable. It is incredible, relentless, intense logic, Keller says. It is what Lloyd-Jones called logic on fire. Paul is saying, think. This is, I'm closing with this, and this is so good, y'all. So stay with me. Think. Are you afraid? 8 verse 31. You aren't thinking. Are you worried? Verse 32. You aren't thinking. Are you feeling guilty? Verse 33. You aren't thinking. See the logic of free grace and justification. These aren't dry doctrines. They are life itself. And if you are not living with overwhelming assurance and power, you haven't really fully understood them. Let God's word it is true. Let the truth of the promises of God in Christ for you, let them lead and shape and pull your feelings along. Okay? Circumstance doesn't, isn't, doesn't dictate the truth for you. Your feelings don't dictate the truth for you. God's word does. And this, what he has said here, is what is true of you if you're in Christ and of, and of all that trust in Christ. So, that's all from me. Um, what about from you? And then we'll close. Just overwhelmingly powerful. <laughs> it is. It's so good. I really enjoyed just... I just skipped through it today like a frolicking lamb. <laughs> I was reminded of the verse in 2 Corinthians... 318 that says, and we all with unveiled face, mm-hmm. beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's a great, it's a wonderful verse. Can you read it one more time, Rachel? What, what's that? 2 318. And mm. we all with unveiled face, mm. beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, okay, what's, what's the salvific sort of 
in the ordo salutis, you know, we're called, we're foreknown, we're called, we're predestined, and we're justified. We're, because they sanctify, glorified. What, what bit in the last part of that verse is Paul talking, putting his finger on here? We're being transformed as from one degree of glory to the next. What is that? What's happening there? Is that justification? It's like, yeah, sanctification, right? Now let's back up to the first part of that verse when, when he says, we are all with unveiled faces. Right? And what is it, Rachel? We're all with unveiled faces. Yeah, what's he what's he tying back to? He's that's right, he's speaking to the Corinthian church. Well, maybe, but I'm more talking about what's he alluding to in the in the Hebrew Bible here, right? When when Moses would would talk to God and he came down from the mountain, he had his face was shiny. Like he had to wear a veil so they wouldn't scare everybody. Well, he was the reason why I say justification, which Maybe yeah, yeah. not right. Yeah, yeah. The reason why I came up is no quarrel with my mind is because <clears throat> it refers to our ability to stand before God and see Him. Big time. That's very true. Yeah, you know, I see your tie in. And so, yep, totally. That's what justification does. Absolutely. So, you're 100 percent right. Thanks for clarifying that. So, Rachel, can you read that first part again? We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Are being transformed. So yeah, Paul. One of the things that Paul's doing is he's alluding to something that every Jew knew, right? Um, and something that Christians, as they began to read the Hebrew Bible, also became familiar with. Is, and that is what Mom just said, which is that when Moses, not only when he met on the mountain with God and came down with with uh, glowing, and he and they, people were terrified, and he had to cover, put a veil over his face, but also when he would go into the tent of meeting and meet with the Lord. It says, the law says that he would meet with God as a friend does face to face. And, um, and nobody else did. And whenever that happened, the glory of the Lord would come down in a pillar and in a cloud, uh, the Shekinah, the glory of God, the very kavod, the very presence of the living God. And the people in the camp would see it, all of Israel in the wilderness, and they would stand there and watch Moses. They couldn't see it, but they would, they, would, they would know that Moses was meeting with God. Like, this is a huge, the God of the universe is coming down. He's picked us as a people. He's led us out of Egypt. He's opened the sea, and he's meeting with Moses. Who's our intercessor? Like, he's the one that went before God after Israel had just uh, completely denied God. Moses up there. I don't know where he is. Let's make an idol so we can, that idol can lead us to, to uh, the promised land. They've completely turned their faces, and Moses goes up, and he goes, hey, Whoa, 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 God, God, God's like, get out. Literally, God goes, get out of my way. Let me at him. Your people have done this. He, he uses that language. Your people, you know, when your kid's naughty and you're like, I'm like, hey, Robin, your daughter you just did this. You know, like I'm basically like disowning. I'm not, but you know, the language and God's not disowning either, but he's using that language for a reason. He's furious with a righteous fury. And, and Mo, what does Moses do? He intercedes, which I'm actually... I'm looking at the text tomorrow. Tomorrow's my sermon day, but I'm, I'm preaching on the bit where Abram intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Where he, and so that's a lesson on interceding prayer, intercession <laughs> prayer. But I'll say Moses steps, as it were, in between God and the people and goes, they don't deserve it, but he goes, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember all the promises you made? Remember how you brought us out of Egypt? Remember how all the nations are watching? Like, and he uses logic and he uses reason and argumentation like any good attorney would. And then, so he's being an attorney before God. He's advocating, just like Christ advocates for us. And then he's like, okay, look, like spare us. But I'm out of arguments. But if you don't, how about you just take me instead? Just like, take, he goes, blot my name out of the book of life. I, I, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, and actually our first, our first text next week in Romans 9, it wasn't intentional because I'm just 
I'm riffing off of uh, something Rachel just read in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but basically in the next passage that begins Romans 9, Paul takes that position with Israel. And he says, essentially, and we'll get here next week, he basically says, I love my countrymen so much that if I could go to hell in their place, if it meant they would know God and be saved, I would do it. I, I mean, so great has Paul's love become. And so in that sense, he's, he's, uh, that's Christ in Paul because that is what Christ did for us, right? And so, but Paul, God says, no, I'm not going to take that. But he interce- Moses intercedes, he stands between. And, um, and so all that to say, the people love Moses. Like he, there's a reason that the Jews still love Moses. The Jews exist still today because of Moses. You know what I'm, I'm not trying to be blasphemous, because, but it's like he stands between them. He's the reason they kept going because God's like, okay, Moses, okay. And it's a picture of Christ, right? It's a picture of Jesus. And so, um, and so he, what, what, what Paul is saying is he's saying, but that wasn't very exclusive. It was Moses only as a picture of Christ who could go before God and face-to-face in a relationship. And, and represent the people. And now Paul is saying, because of Jesus, we all, we all with unveiled face, we all get to go into the presence of God because of Jesus. We, like we were just talking about it at the end of Romans 8, like we, we're now encased in Christ. So, so we, we, we are seated with him. We're at the right hand of God with him. He's, he's approaching for us. He's appealing for us. We are encased in him. And so we have the rights of the firstborn. We receive them by faith. Great verse. What else? I think just, you know, as we go through life, sometimes we do get, you know, we, we forget. We forget the promises of God. But, I mean, good that we try to remember them, but the enemy comes against us and, you know, makes us hopeless and and it's the body of that's what the body of Christ is for is mm. to come alongside of our you know each other and to help us hold our arms up and to say remember 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 the remember promises of God right and totally to keep pointing each other each back other and back who we are at Christ and what Christ is to gospel one another to and gospel myself to be gospel by others to, to gospel take each our other eyes off our circumstances right and keep our What's really real, yeah. which is the spiritual realm, that's mm. that's our reality. It's mm. not this. Mm. This is gonna this is gonna burn. Mm. And then be remade. But, yeah. Yeah. But We're not gonna be yeah, spirits floating around in some ethereal realm. realm. Mm-hmm. Is, is who Christ is and That's the real battle, is. right? But we have to remind not each other. Not flesh and blood. That. Yeah. And that's Amen. So Amen. When I, I know Jewish families and how they kept the stories going the and that's really what it is isn't it Laurent? it's the story we were going over this in our new member class on having lunch on Sunday after worship and uh, just reminding them like, hey, the shortest form that I've heard of the gospel is God saves sinners. That's J.I. Packer, like three words. If you're forgetting, if you need an elevator speech or you're talking to your cashier, like God saves sinners. He did it in Jesus. He, he took the punishment we all deserve. Like he's made a way to go. Boom. You just presented the gospel. Now, 
the larger thing is the four movements of like creation, fall, redemption. We've been purchased by Christ. He's taken what we deserve and given us his life. And then new creation. So it's a story that we're brought into. And telling that story with those four movements is something that it's a way to gospel one another. Reminding ourselves that we're part of that story. You know, and um, yeah, to tell it in a story form. Like story resonates with this culture and and we are part of God's story because of Christ. And so, um, and if even if people don't, even if people don't like, sin or jesus like jesus loves you yeah yeah or you're a sinner what you know that might not resonate with people but do what does resonate with people even if they want to admit it is like start with creation like hey there's a reason that you feel like everything out there is freaking messed up it's not what it should be and inside of here even if people deny sin like you know you're not the best version of yourself like there's so much that you feel like you can accomplish and you keep getting in your own way like man anyone who has a scintilla of honesty will admit that and so that's, that's because we're not made, we've fallen. We're not made this way, but we've fallen. And the rest, most of scripture is about God coming after us in love. I mean, that resonates because it's the true story. And so we, when we tell that story to our, our kids and our, each other and, 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 and strangers, we're, we're speaking the gospel story. And, and, um, and then you are significant, that you matter, like God died for you. Who can condemn you? Come to Christ. So... And on that note, Laurence, that how Jews do that so well, um, we were just a bit of a testimony. We, um, so Robin's brother is married to an Israeli, and her, she came in town with, with Mark and, and their kids. Uh, Mark is Robin's brother. And uh, last week, and, and, and stay with us. And then um, her parents came straight from Israel. And up until the last minute, she was nervous that they wouldn't make it out, you know, because all the war going on over there. But they did, and... So, so they had, we had Friday night is their beginning of Shabbat, and they, they're very secular, but they, do, but they celebrate Shabbat religiously every Friday night, and they make this awesome, like, bread that they weave like a braid and bake and, and uh, put butter all over, mm-hmm. and um, they make fish, and they make other amazing things, and they have these, so he did this whole thing in Hebrew. We all wore, like, napkins on our heads, but I had a... I had a, I had a uh, um, yarmulke that I went and got out of my out of my tie drawer but we all had napkins on our heads and we all stood there and we had this little glass of wine that we passed around and drank and he he read the whole thing in Hebrew and man just that and everyone's invited like you guys were invited but but she forgot to invite you so she's like oh I forgot to invite your parents know that they're they need to know they're always invited and your brother is always invited and he's like it's just this awesome and so and we have yeah we have a better we have a better story you know, it's, it's that story, but it's that story that's, that crescendos in Christ. And so we need to tell it more. Yeah, the answer key. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, if you hate Jews, you hate Jesus, because Jesus remains a Jew. We're speaking about remaining a man and interceding for us, like he he is a Jew forever. He will always. This is actually I'm I'm responsible for remaking part of the and fortifying the tests for that we are passing our elder candidates through at Sojourn Houston, not just at Galleria. And uh, I'm responsible for the theology and Bible section. And one of the questions I ask is Jesus Jesus still resembles Mary still still resembles Mary. 
and it sounds like a dumb question, but it's like, do you understand that Jesus, the humanity of Christ and the importance of his humanity, his continuing humanity, it's about his intercession. And like, yeah, he still, he still looks like his mother in some, in some capacity because he remains a man and he remains a son of Mary and he will always identify with us and represent us as, as, as a human. So, um, anyway. Be weird to be Mary in eternity. What'd you say? Be weird to be Mary in eternity. I know, right? I, I think about sometimes her being received by her son when she died, and just mm-hmm. like how amazing. And we'll all get to meet her. How wonderful! Yeah. If we all are in Christ, indeed. Mm-hmm. I think everyone at this table is. I usually don't, don't speak for people, but I feel like I know y'all well enough that you're you're regenerate, you're you're new creations in Christ. Um, anything else? We may might have it's it's nine not bang on nine o'clock. But any one more quick quick comment or question, and then I'll close this in a quick prayer. Well, okay, let me, next week is a deep dive into, I think it's a, a passage, a chapter that um, John Piper spent like seven or nine years on. He wrote a book called The Justification of God. It's a monograph. I've got it. I might, I'll, I'll peek into it. Yeah. Yes. I think he did his PhD in Germany on it, but let me, uh, let me pray. I won't spend seven years on it. I'll spend two weeks. Lord, thank you for, um. Uh, in some ways, the deep dive, in some ways, a, uh, just getting across the surface of this amazing bit of your word. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that Jesus is the perfect articulation of who you are, the absolute perfect. Um, when we see his arms outstretched on the cross and his tender love and his rebuke of, of the haughty, but yet dying for them, we see your, we see your very heart. Um, in the face of, of Jesus Christ, we see, we see your glory, Lord. And so um, let us behold him. Let us meditate on and, and memorize uh, and think about and talk about th- this scripture that we just went over. Uh, Romans, your word, the gospel story. May we be obsessed with it increasingly because we're increasingly obsessed, as Paul was, enraptured with, rhapsodizing about Jesus Christ and his beauty and the beauty of how you saved us in him. So if we're about anything, would we be about that, Lord? Um, If we're cheering people that cheer at games and other things, would we cheer and weep over uh, what you've done for us in your son and tell others and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, okay.